Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. Today we're looking at O's Manual Chapter 104 and it has a decent chapter on the intensive care aspects of lung transplantation. A lot of this stuff will of course end up being fairly centre specific but there is a good general overview to be had here. So lung transplants do reasonably well overall, most likely due to careful selection of who gets them and you're talking about a median survival of 7 years and 80% alive at 1 year. Donation after cardiac death is becoming an increasing source of donor organs and the lungs seem relatively tolerant of the short, warm, ischemic time. Though, remember, kidneys are still the best overall for that. So who might be a candidate for lung transplantation? The generic phrase is, quote, advanced non-malignant disease for which there is no alternative therapy, close quote. However, a list of common potential indications that you might put in an exam might go as follows. So advanced non-malignant disease without alternative, as mentioned, COPD or alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency often are common cause for that. Cystic fibrosis, of course, pulmonary fibrosis, um, and often single lung transplant is done in that scenario, bronchiectasis, uh, and even pulmonary vascular disease. There are, of course, lots of other um, indications as well, but those are just a a short list. The other major component to patient selection is, of course, how well they're going to tolerate the overall burden of surgery, intensive care, and the long-term prospects of immunosuppression. As a result, candidates tend to be fairly stable uh, with severe disease and are generally admitted from home, unlike the liver transplant patient who may well get their transplant in the midst of full multi-organ failure. There are some exceptions, and again, it has been done where people have used VV ECMO as a bridge to transplant, somewhat akin to using an LVAD as a bridge to heart transplant, but these should be considered as truly exceptional. The potential donor is typically split into one of two categories. You can have the standard donor and you can have the high-risk or marginal donor. These are distinguished by obvious factors such as age and smoking history and the state of the donor lung at the time of procurement. As someone without an anaesthesia background, I have little insider involvement with the procurement process, but I do find the recent development of the ex vivo perfusion devices to be fascinating. And these have now recently been developed for the lungs, which allow donor lungs to be perfused and even optimised before implantation. The surgical technique used is typically a sequential single lung transplant, so one at a time, with individual bronchial anastomoses rather than a complete on-block technique with an anastomosis at the trachea. And if the native lungs are good enough to tolerate single lung ventilation, then it can be done without by- out bypass. But the second lung is obviously dependent on immediate effective perfusion and gas exchange occurring in the first transplanted lung to allow the second lung to actually be implanted. This is well outside the realm of intensive care, but remains a somewhat magical act that my surgical and anaesthetic colleagues perform in the operating room. Post-op is where intensive care is subbed onto the pitch to take over the physiology of the fairly roughed up transplant patient, and there are a range of potential issues to cover that are probably best split up by system. So from a respiratory perspective, the grafted lungs are denervated, and therefore there isn't the usual cough and the mucociliary clearance, at least in the early phases. The general idea is, of course, generally just to wake and wean them and extubate, but about 15% or so of transplants will need prolonged ventilation. Single lung transplant can cause a lot more issues as the, the two lungs often have markedly different respiratory dynamics and will experience the pressure from the ventilator very differently. The same discrepancy between the lungs is also experienced by the right heart, which continues to pump expecting the long-standing increased pulmonary vascular resistance that it might have been used to. But now, once the blood gets into the pulmonary trunk, it is faced with either an obstructive high-resistance pulmonary artery on one side and a nice low-resistance system in the other pulmonary artery. And this can end up with the new lung receiving a disproportionate amount of the cardiac output that can flood the lung. Indeed, the right heart is one of the major causes for concern overall here in the lung transplant patient. Immunosuppression typically comes with some early basiliximab and ultimately an anti-metabolite and calcineurin inhibitor. In terms of infection, prophylaxis plays a big role as the lungs are more exposed to the manky, dirty outside world than most of the other transplanted organs. 
but you will typically have some sputum cultures from the donor already growing before the transplant is done, and that can help guide your antimicrobials. PJP prophylaxis will be needed, but there's no great rush in this, and CMV is needed for all, but as usual, mismatched donors and recipients have the highest risk. Primary graft dysfunction typically presents as worsening gas exchange, decreased compliance, and alveolar infiltrates. And ischemia reperfusion injury is a common kind of mechanism here. It's non-immune mediated, and it's an important cause of early mortality and causes long-term morbidity as well. It's worth noting that it is a recognised indication for VV ECMO. Other things to look for in the early stages are anastomotic ischemia. So the bronchial arteries are typically not anastomosed, so perfusion is not as good as it might be in the native situation. This occurs in about 2%. Phrenic nerve palsy is an understandable complication in about 5%, and a fairly niche one is pulmonary venous kinking, where one of the newly anastomosed pulmonary veins has got kinked in the process of implanting the lung, and a TOE or CTA is one way that you're able to see this. Acute, re- acute rejection, on the other hand, is a more delayed phenomenon, phenomenon with lots of changes that can look like infection and indeed you can have infection and acute rejection at the same time ultimately you need a biopsy and once you find it it's big doses of pulsed um, steroids as a treatment finally post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder or ptld can occur in five to ten percent of lung transplants which is much higher than other solid organ transplants and usually this is with um, ebv infections with b-cell proliferation which is unopposed as the t-cells um, that are usually dealing with this are suppressed by the immunosuppression so for further reading have a look at o's manual chapter 104 and life in the fast lane has a nice summary post in this also 